Uh, and now we're going to dive into God's Word, and Dennis is going to read our sermon text this morning. So listen to the Word of the Lord. Good morning from Psalm 119, chapter 60, excuse me, Psalm 119, verse 49. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Amen. Let's pray. Good God, we thank you for making yourself known to us, the God of all creation, called everything into existence out of nothing. God, the fact that we can know you and be, by, be known by you is amazing. I pray that we would never lose the sense of awe. And God, we thank you for your grace that you give, that we can have a relationship with you through Christ. We thank you for the gift of your word. It indeed is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And God, as we open it now, I pray that you would shine it brightly into our lives. God, we need to hear from you. And so we pray that you'd give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see how magnificent you are. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you guys ever seen those funny uh, social experiments where everybody kind of does one thing to see if the one person who they're experimenting on is going to change direction, do something different? Like the elevator, right? Everybody knows when you get in the elevator, you face forward, right? But what happens if you get on the elevator and everybody in there is facing backwards? What are you going to do? Are you going to go along with it and just be like, these people are strange. I'm just going to continue to do what I know is clearly the right thing to do. Or do you feel the pressure to turn around and face backwards, even though you never would have done that before? You know, sometimes life can feel that way. It seems like everyone around us is doing one thing, and if we aren't doing that one thing, then we feel like the odd one out. Maybe something's wrong with us. Maybe we've missed something along the way. It can make us, in those moments, feel lonely. When that happens, what do we do? Do we conform to those around us, or do we stay our course? It can be difficult to know what to do. And is isn't just that, right? I mean, life is challenging along the way. Kind of see, everybody seems to be doing well going this direction. It's different than what I feel like God's calling me to do, but maybe I should just go along with what they're doing. Is it really worth remaining faithful? Well, as we come to this next section in our short sermon series in Psalm 119, we see that the author of this psalm is really wrestling with this. He's experiencing difficulty in this life, in this journey that he has with God as he's seeking to be faithful, but people around him aren't. He's tempted. Do I, do I go the way that they're going or do I remain focused and faithful? And what it produces in him is a whole lot of emotion. One of the things it produces in him is lament. The lament isn't a word that we use a lot and I think not a concept we talk about a lot. But it's a regular part of the life in this world, even for the worshiper of God. A lament is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. But it's not just a noun, it's also a verb. So to lament is to mourn, to express outwardly that grief and sadness. 
And in a world that's broken, a world that's marked by evil, evil within us. Last week, Mark talked about the fact that we still have sin, that we wrestle with this problem of sin that remains in us, even as followers of Jesus. The problem of evil that we see around us, things coming at us. Lament is an appropriate response to those things for him and for us. We can express that grief, express that sadness, express that sorrow. And we see the author do that, but he doesn't stay there. As we said at the beginning of this series and have seen so far, Psalm 119 is, is more like reading a prayer journal of a person who's wrestling with the truth of God's word in the midst of real life. It's more like that than it is a, a theological textbook about scripture. It's a cry of faith to the God who speaks. And it's God's word that enables this particular person to, to navigate the very real struggle and very real sorrow of living life in a world that's set against God. See, he's not living life in a vacuum, disconnected from reality. He's on a journey, and he is painfully aware that all is not right. So see, God's word doesn't lead him to be stoic. It leads him to be honest. It leads him to express emotion. We see that throughout this psalm. We see that out throughout all of the psalms. It's God's word that enables him to lament, but not without hope. Even when he feels like he's the only one not facing the back of the elevator. See, like the psalmist, all of us are on a spiritual journey. All of us are somewhere along that journey. Some of us are walking closely with God right now. Others of us are struggling to have faith because of something maybe going on in your life right now. Others of us are questioning whether God is real or not. But no matter where you are on that journey, sometimes it can be challenging. It can be difficult to know how to move forward, how not to give up or give in or despair along the way. In those difficult moments, it can be tempting when we feel like life is crushing in around us and we're not sure what to do. It can be tempting to turn into ourselves instead of turning to God. And so my hope is, as we walk through this section of Psalm 119, that you'll see that even when things around you are challenging, even when things around you are difficult, even when the road ahead seems treacherous, when you might feel like you're the only one, the only one that's striving to be faithful, that you too will be able to lament, but to do so with hope. Hope that comes when you anchor yourself in the goodness and grace of the God who speaks and his inexhaustible riches of his word to you. So let's jump into his word, into Psalm 119, and may God bless the preaching of his word. All of this psalm, as we said, is in the context of relationship. The author is talking to God. He's crying out in faith to God, the God who speaks. He's asking for his help. And as this stanza begins, we see that he's praying for promise in verses 49 and 50. Look at verse 49. The author writes, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. I think it's interesting that he begins by asking God to remember something. I don't know about you, but if I don't want to forget something, I need to write it down or put it in my calendar on my phone or my Todoist app. It's like my external brain. Like anything, I think anything I need to remember to make sure I don't forget to do something or email somebody or call somebody or do something with my family, I have to put it down in one of those apps or who knows what's gonna happen. Is that what's going on here? Does God need the author's help to remember something? 
Is he trying to be God's personal assistant? No, when he asks God to remember, it isn't because he thinks God has forgotten. It's an appeal because he wants God to be faithful, which he always is. He wants God to remember and fulfill the word, or as he says in verse 50, the promises that he's spoken to him and over him. In verse 50, he says, this is my comfort and my infliction that your promise gives me life. Promise is another word for God's word. It means what God pledges to do. So this isn't like a pinky promise, right? Where, okay, sure, I kind of promise you, but I'm willing to break it. I don't really have to follow through on it. This isn't a promise to be disregarded, a promise to be broken. It's a pronouncement of truth, truth that's rooted in the character and nature of the God who makes the promise, the one who speaks it. See, what's happening here is that this, this servant of God is experiencing this affliction that he talks about, and we'll see that we, he has these people around him who are treating him poorly, who are disregarding God and his word, and that's making his life difficult. It's making following God in this life challenging and following his good ways challenging. And so when the author asks God to remember his word, to remember his promise to him, this isn't to try and kickstart God's brain. It's not a reminder to go off. It's a plea for mercy in the midst of God's providence. And really, it's more for the author than it is for God. See, remembering is common in lament. We see the word remember three times in the English translation, verse 52, it says, when I think, but it's the same concept here, this remembering. It's an appeal to a previously made promise. It's bringing to mind what he knows to be true. And in this section, he's focused on bringing to mind what is right and true because he's having a really hard time. See, when you and I articulate to God who God is, it helps align our own hearts and our own minds to him. So he isn't asking God to do something he already hasn't done. He isn't asking him to make a new promise. He isn't asking because he thinks God might forget or he might not do what he says. He's doing this because he's in relationship with him and he desperately needs him. But you notice something here. He's experiencing affliction, but in this section at least, he doesn't ask for God to take it away. Doesn't mean we shouldn't ask for God to help us. It doesn't mean we shouldn't ask for God to remove affliction or difficulty or suffering in our life, but in this instance, that's not his focus. Instead, he finds hope. Instead, he seeks comfort in the midst of all of it by finding it in God and his good word to him. There's two encouraging words in this opening prayer, the word hope and the word life. Hope is a word we maybe throw around, but what does it really mean? I mean, often I think we think that hope is kind of wishful thinking. Like, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon. Or I hope that I get that bonus that I'm expecting. Or I hope this job works out. Or I hope she will notice me or he will notice me and ask me out. Right? It can be kind of a wishful thinking, but that's not what biblical hope is. No, hope that we see throughout the Bible is connected to God. It's a confident expectation that what God says he will do, he will in fact do. It's an expression of faith in the faithfulness of God. And how do we know what God says? How do we know what God will do and who God is? We know through his word. He's revealed himself to us in the pages of Scripture. And what we learn throughout Scripture from beginning to end is that our God is a redeemer. And our God is a provider. 
And our God is a deliverer. And our God is a restorer. That's why the author takes comfort in the promise of God that gives him life. Not physical life, but being alive toward God. Like we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Being able to live quorum Deo in the presence of God, before God. God's word, this promise to him, allows him to come into the presence of God. And that gives him hope. It gives him comfort. See, the hope that the author speaks of that's rooted in God's word isn't necessarily believing that the circumstances of his life are going to change. But that he looks to the God who speaks and believes that he has you, that he sees you, that he will keep you, that he will see you through to the end. Man, I've needed this in my own life. To be reminded of this, even this past week, Amy reminding me of God's provision for us and his faithfulness to us. My guess is many of us need that kind of reminder. See, it's God's character, it's God's faithfulness towards him, towards us that revive our spirit, that give us fresh courage and comfort to remain focused and faithful no matter how hard the circumstances might be, how hard the road ahead might be. One of the things this section of Psalm 119 shows us is that the blessed life that we looked at two weeks ago doesn't mean that we won't encounter difficulty in this life. He shows us that's not the case. We see that in this text. Jesus himself told us that would be the case. John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, trial, difficulty, affliction, suffering, But then Jesus makes this promise, but take heart, I, I have overcome the world. See, the author asks God to remember his word to him, that he is a mighty God, a faithful redeemer, an all-powerful overcomer. And you know what? That's his word to you too. We see it throughout the Bible, but ultimately in and through the gospel, the good word, the good news of God to us. See, Jesus came into this world to overcome this world because he overcomes sin and sadness that is present in this world. And he does so by going across for you and for me, by taking all of our shame on his shoulders, all of our sin on his shoulders like we sung about this morning, and then rising again from the grave to give us life. Peter tells us that according to God's great mercy, not because you figured anything out, but because God showered his grace and his mercy on you, he has caused you to be born again to a living hope. Hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You can't lose it. You can't squander it. You can't misplace it. You can't be like, oh, no, I didn't put it in my reminders in my phone. No, it's kept in heaven for you. And what is that inheritance? It's eternal life with God. You'll be with him forever, and he will be your God, and we will be his people. And we know this. We can have confidence in this because God's word tells us so. Brothers and sisters, his promise still gives life to you. So pray and plead for that to take root in your heart and in your mind each and every day. It's easy right now while we're sitting here on a Sunday morning. But as you go out into your week this week, as school begins, as you encounter difficulty in your life, pray and plead that God would help you to call to mind what is true. May you be washed with the refreshing water of his word to you. In this section, we see that the author prays for promise, but we also see some more specifics to the challenges that he's facing as he's confronted and comforted. Look at verse 51. 
He says, the insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. That's strong language. An insolent person is a, is a disrespectful person, a rude person. They're brash. They're arrogant. And in this case, they are deriding him. They're, they're ridiculing him. At a minimum, they're poking fun at him. But I think there's more to it than that, probably much worse than that. They're persecuting him for his desire to faithfully follow God, to keep facing forward in the elevator. They've decided how to live their own life, and they mock anyone who looked to God to know how to live. That's a hard place to be. It can feel lonely. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Maybe some of you are experiencing now in your family or in your school, or in your neighborhood, or your workplace. But even though it seems that everyone is facing the back of the elevator and giving him a really hard time for not going along with them, we can be encouraged by his example. Even though he's mocked, he says he doesn't turn away from God's covenant instruction. No, instead, he, he runs to his word. He finds comfort in the midst of the difficulty and discouragement. Look at verse 52. He says, when I think of your rules of old, I take comfort, O Lord. He takes comfort. But he takes comfort in God's rules. Man, we chafe at the word rules, don't we? How in the world does someone find comfort in rules? Well, the word here means God's judgments, ordinances, or decrees. These are the authoritative decisions of an all-wise judge about common human situations. It means this is what God says about life. This means Scripture expresses God's righteous standards for how people relate to one another. Well, that's a little difficult to understand. I like how one author puts it. He says of this verse, translates it, I watch for your ancient landmark words, and I know I'm on the right track. When everything else around you seems to be going a different direction, he finds comfort by looking back to God's word and saying, okay, this is the right way to go. He's comforted when the evil of the world calls him to live his own truth. He, he's comforted when he comes back to what God says is true and right and good. He knows that because of who God is, because of his character and nature, all of his commands are for his good and for his joy. But man, it can be disorienting, can't it, in the day-to-day -day of life to know which way is up or down, right or left, which leads to life or death, when there's so much noise and so many people, even those who call themselves followers of God, telling you, no, 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 that's wrong, this is right. And Jesus knows what this is like too. He was tempted in every way that you and I are, yet without sin. And he confronted his temptation by rehearsing God's word. He was also mocked. He was also ridiculed for his faithfulness. The interesting thing is who Jesus was mocked by, who he was ridiculed by, wasn't the world. It was other religious people, the religious elite. As we learn in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, speaking of Jesus, it said, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This has been helpful for me in my own life. Because the reality is, if I'm feeling disoriented or discouraged when I feel attacked or ridiculed or misunderstood, I can be tempted to run to other things for comfort. Food or drink or what's on my social media feed or reading something about baseball or just distracting myself in what other way to find comfort. Maybe you can relate to that. 
But Jesus goes and entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus, though, is not only our example, he's also the one that supplies the grace to help and heal when this happens in our own life. Peter goes on to say, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. You were trying to go the way of the world. You were following after everybody else. But now, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Listen, when you're facing challenges for following Jesus, don't be ashamed. You know whom you have believed. You know the God of all creation. So turn to Jesus, the shepherd of your soul, to find grace and help and comfort in and through his word of grace to you. Maybe for some of you, that's for the first time, like we've talked about some this morning. But for many of us, it's just for the thousandth time in our life, we have to keep coming back to the one who extends grace to us. Stay on the road that leads to life. You know, being derided isn't the only problem our author is having. In verse 53, he says, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. In verse 51, we see strong language for those who poke fun and persecute. Here we see strong emotion for those who don't follow God and his ways. Another word for hot indignation is rage. He's furious. He's furious over wickedness. This is kind of the pinnacle of his lament, of his grief. There's some interesting things to pay attention to here. You notice what makes him mad isn't persecution, it's willful disobedience. But this isn't just about those out there who don't obey God. It includes the people who claim to be God's people. People who know the ways of God, who know what God's word says, but choose to walk the other way. Later in verse 136, he says, his eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. He has so much emotion, rage, sadness, sorrow, not over the people themselves, but over sin and its effects. Because he knows that when people choose sin, when they choose self instead of God, when they listen to the ways of the world, when their ears are tickled by teachers who want to tell them what they want to hear, instead of God and his good ways, they won't be blessed. That they won't experience life like he has. He longs for his fellow people to experience this too. I think what we see here as he's confronted with sin, as he's confronted with disobedience of others, is what pastor and author Erwin Entz calls divine dissatisfaction. Divine dissatisfaction. It's being angry, not about personal preferences or opinions, but the things that God is angry about. Things like injustice and evil and idolatry. And how do we know what things God is indignant about, angry about? We know it through his word, not through what somebody writes on a blog or we see on a TV. We know it from because God speaks it and tells us that. See, Jesus displayed a righteous anger when he went into the temple and flipped the tables of those in there who were disparaging the place of God and defrauding the people of God. Those who were lying, selling lies and selling false truths to God's people. That can be hard to know what to do, right? When we see or experience wickedness or injustice and evil in our world, we can always go around flipping tables, right? What are we supposed to do in those moments, especially if we aren't sure if we actually can do anything to make things better? So we find ourselves crying out, how long, O oh Lord, how long will you allow these things to be? And I can struggle with that. 
I see things and confronted with those kinds of things in our world. But I think something encouraging we see here that we're reminded of here is that God is a safe person and a safe place for you to process those emotions with. So instead of being consumed by those things, we can take him to the God who is a consuming fire. The God who will vindicate. The God who will see justice come to fruition. The one who says, vengeance is mine. And see, it's in Jesus and through Jesus that he will restore all things in heaven and on earth, Paul tells us in Colossians 1. It's in Jesus and through Jesus that all sad things will become untrue. But until that day and until that time, we wait. See, with all that's going on around him, all that this author is experiencing in his own life, all that he's sad about and he's wrestling with and he feels anger about, it reminds him that this place is not his home. Which leads him to the last part of this section where he, we see that he is singing and secure. Look at verse 54. He writes, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. Sojourning is about identity. To be a sojourner is to recognize that you are on a journey, that you're a guest who's just passing through. And in some ways, acknowledging that you're a sojourner is an expression of hopeful lament. It's a recognition that this world isn't the way that it's supposed to be. This place isn't my home, but I know where my home is. I know that the new heavens and the new earth are coming. I know that I belong to the kingdom of God and will dwell in the city of God forever. But right now, I'm a stranger in a strange land. This isn't just true for him. It's true for us, too. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you're seeking to follow him, you have a new identity now. You've been transferred into this new kingdom, into God's kingdom. And while you're no longer of this world, you are in it. We have to see throughout time and history that singing has always been important to God's people. It helps us, it teaches us, it instructs us. And the music that this author listens to on the way, kind of the soundtrack of his journey, it's informed by God's word. The songs for his sojourning, they help to ground him and to guide him and to guard him and to keep out the other noise that's distracting him. Even if everyone around him is disregarding God in his ways, it keeps him on the narrow road that leads to life instead of drifting off course and careening into a place of death. Singing these songs of sojourning help him to be honest, to lament, but with hope. See, the words he sings are filled with hope that transcends the sins and sorrows of this world. And you and I can do the same thing. It's one of the things I love about gathering together as the church is we sing together. We sing songs of joy and of truth, songs that acknowledge our brokenness and our need for grace, songs that speak to the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God, songs of hope in the midst of real sadness. We've sung some of those already, and we're going to sing two more before we leave today. It's the truth of these words that are central for us to navigate life because it's difficult. The reality is, for all of, us, all of us, if we're honest, is that sometimes we're really struggling. Struggling to have faith. Struggling to believe. Struggling to keep moving forward. I mean, I've been there many times in my journey. Even recently, just wrestling with the Lord. And in those moments, it can be difficult to sing. It can be difficult to open up God's word, to get into God's word. And listen, that's okay. But just don't do it alone. That's why life and community is so important. Why gathering with the church is so important. 
You can read God's word anytime. You can sing songs about God and to God anytime. But something unique happens when God's people gather together. The Holy Spirit at work within each of us to bring us together in this time and in this place. It's an opportunity for us to be reminded that, yes, we are sojourners. Yes, this place is not our home. Yes, life is hard, but we are not on this journey by ourselves. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. God's word has to be central to our lives, taking root in the depths of who we are. But then he says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See, when we sing these songs of sojourning, we sing these songs to God and about God, but we also sing to one another and for one another. So listen, if you can't sing... It's okay. Not like you have a bad voice. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. It doesn't say perfect pitch. Anyway, if you don't feel like you can sing, you can't get those words out of your mouth because you're struggling right now. That you see the words on the screen and you're like, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if I believe that right now. Come and be with God's people. You don't even have to stand. There's no fake it till you make it here, right? Just be who you are in your seat, but listen to the saints around you, your brothers and sisters who at least in that moment have faith to sing those songs. Let them sing those words over you and be encouraged by that as we praise our God and King together. If you can't open up God's word and read it right now, it's difficult for you to do that. You're having a hard time believing these words on these pages to be true. Invite someone to come and read it over you, to share it with you someone who has faith in the moment right now to tell you what is true about God. I know it's tempting in those dark and difficult moments just to stay away and stay at home, to stay disconnected, but come and sing these songs of sojourning together with fellow sojourners, people on and along the way. You know, sometimes we can't be with other people, right? Sometimes we're left just with our thoughts, especially at night. The author understands that too. Look at verse 55. He says, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. I'm guessing a lot of us can relate to this. Either either as you're trying to go to bed or in the middle of the night or in those dawn hours when it's not quite time to get up yet, when your mind starts going. Those can be some of the most mentally and spiritually challenging times that we experience. It's in those moments that our minds tend to race and anxiety tends to rise. This too is a result of living life in a world that's marked by difficulty and sorrow and sadness and sin. So what do we do with that? What can we learn from this fellow sojourner when this happens in our own life? Well, we see that he says he remembers God's name in the night. What exactly does that mean? Like he just like, God, like I just remember your name and that's sufficient enough? Well, remembering God's name is shorthand for remembering his character. And the most consistent way that God speaks of himself in his word is that he is gracious and merciful, that he's full of steadfast love and faithfulness. The pages of scripture say that over and over again, and they show that over and over again. So in the watches of the night, when his mind is racing, when his mind is reeling, he seeks to bring to mind what he knows to be true about God. And this helps him not necessarily get to sleep, but it helps him the next day to keep moving forward, to lament, but to do so with hope. 
So we have to understand, this is not a means just to grant sleep. It's not like a spiritual unisom. Right? Like, okay, just remember God's name, and then in 30 seconds I'll be passed out. No, you may have to labor through the night. It may be a season of difficulty where you feel like it's really hard for you to get rest in the middle of the night by yourself. What we see here, though, is a means not necessarily to grant you sleep, but to calm and quiet your heart and your mind and your soul before God. So let me encourage you, if you find yourself in one of those seasons right now or at some point in the future, try to call to mind what you know to be true about God. Try to call to mind what you know, that he is your good shepherd, that he sees you, that he cares for you, that he leads you to green pastures and beside still waters, that he is with you in the valley of death and of darkness. See, while the author is certainly talking about the literal night and being awake, I think there's also an allusion here just to the darkness of the world we live in. You and I are waiting for light to break in, to relieve all of our distress and brokenness. And that can be hard. See, all this sounds good in theory, but in reality, it can be hard to practice. When we're in the darkness of night or in the dark night of the soul, it can be easy to be overtaken by evil. The struggles we have within or those that are surrounding us, it can be easy to be ta- overtaken by the trials of life in this world. And yes, sometimes we will run to God. And sometimes we will remember his name in the night. But you know what? Sometimes we won't. We won't. And our minds will be given over to worry or unbelief or distraction as we look for comfort in other things. I, I know that because it's often been there. I find some of my darkest moments in my thoughts come right before I go to bed or while I'm lying there awake at night. And yes, sometimes I think and I pray, but sometimes I just let them go. Brother, sister, if that's you, hear me. There's grace for you. There's grace for you in those moments. The beginning of James, chapter 4, verse 6, has been such a refreshment to me in my own weakness, my own wandering mind. James simply writes this, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. There's no like cap on God's grace to you. You don't get to the end of the day and say, you actually already used it all up for the day. I'm sorry it's 2 a.m., but no more until tomorrow. It doesn't, it doesn't reset day to day. He gives more grace. It's abundant grace for you. Do you need more grace? Man, I do. Do you need God's help? Man, I do. So let me invite you, come to the one whose name is mighty and powerful, to the one who is the solid rock and sure foundation, the one who invites the weak and the weary, the sad and the sorrowful to find rest in him, the one who has come and will come again to make all things new. See, he sings these songs of sojourning, informed by the very words of the God who speaks, and it helps him, and I hope helps us then to be secure. Verse 56, he says, this blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. The wording of this is a little confusing, but what he's getting at is this. The reason he knows God, the reason he can find security and comfort in God, the reason he can process his emotions and be honest with God and have hope in the midst of the difficulty of life and continue to obey God and keep his word isn't because he's super smart. It isn't because he's super spiritual. It isn't because he figured it all out. It's because of grace. The world around him is broken and it's rebellious. That makes life hard and worth lamenting. It's worth being sad over. But the fact that he sees a better way to live, that he sees God's way is because God has blessed him. He's given him ears to hear and eyes to see. He's given him the gift of faith. 
And that's a securing reality for his life. It's God's work. It's God's doing from beginning to end. It provides ballast to his life in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the difficulty he's enduring. He knows that he belongs to God. The same is true for you. If you know God, if you have a genuine relationship with Jesus, I hope that humbles you. It humbles me because we didn't figure it out. God was gracious and merciful to us. In love, he chose us to be his own, adopted us into his family forever. So as you call that to mind, as you recognize that blessing that's fallen to you, may it give you a holy confidence and security no matter what's going on in your life, that by grace, through faith, in our once dead, now risen Savior, you too belong to God, never to be forsaken. Brothers and sisters, how do we lament with hope as sojourners in this world that can feel so dark and so difficult. We do so by being anchored in God and his word of grace. May that help you and I to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible no matter what comes our way. Amen.